Welcome to Leading Lights. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church. We've come to the end of Jesus' seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor in 95 AD. Can I just say that 95 AD may as well be 1995 or 2022. It's the same thing because it's after Jesus has gone back to heaven. He is still speaking to churches through his word, but also through his messengers. You know, at the start of every letter, he says to the messenger or the angel of the church, people are still speaking into our churches and Jesus is still actively involved. He knows the leadership. He describes an an aspect of his personality to the church because he says, that's what you need to hear and that's what you need to shine to the world. And he says, I know your works. I have a message for you. If you have an ear, you must listen, even if no one else is listening. And you must overcome to him who overcomes. So God is still speaking. Get into a church. It is so exciting and vibrant to hear from Jesus amongst his family. So this is the last one, the church of Laodicea. And in verse 14 of Revelation 3, Jesus says, To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, Laodicea means rule of the people, and some people have said it's interesting that all the others, he says the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, etc. But here he says the church of the Laodiceans. In other words, it looks like this was a democratically run church, not a small leadership team, but the whole church voted on everything. He says, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is telling them that he is the one they can trust, the faithful and true witness. You can listen to a whole lot of ideas. Everyone's got a perspective and an opinion. But Jesus says, I am the one. I'm the Amen. In other words, the final word, so be it. Uh, The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the one from which everything comes. You can trust me. You know, in a church where everybody speaks loudly and you you get a consensus of opinion there is strength in that but the the risk is that we water down the truth and we go to the lowest common denominator because we don't want to offend people and everyone's perspective is given the same weight and so sometimes it can be difficult for us to say what is true and Jesus speaks his word speaks he is the leader of the church not us the church is for his glory not for our comfort or pleasure. He says, I know your works, verse 15, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Wow, what a shocking statement for Jesus to make. He says to them, I know your works. I've looked in your lives. I've looked at your hearts and your outward actions. And you are neither cold, which means far away from God. You know, people who are uh, passionately against or or not for God. They want to just live their lives for themselves, for pleasure, uh, for whatever it is. At least they're consistent. They say, I don't believe there's a God. And so I'm just going to live my life for the here and now. If there's no God, who cares? I'm I'm in it for me. I'm going to try and enjoy my life the best I can push others down unless it benefits me to lift others up, but it's always about them. Those are the cold people. They are clearly and openly living for themselves. He says, you could either be cold 
or you could be hot. <clears throat> These are the people who are sold out for God, sold out for Jesus. Their whole life and their passion and their focus in life is about Jesus and about doing what he wants. They have completely given up living for themselves and they say, it's all about God. I love him so much. I just want to please him, do what pleases him and living for his glory and his kingdom and for eternity to come. What is what is the best thing I can do with my time, my money, my abilities for God and for the kingdom to come? Those are the cold and those are the hot. And we may know people on either of those extremes. But what is so surprising and shocking and important for us to see in this verse is Jesus says, I wish you were cold or hot, but because you're in the middle, lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. What is a lukewarm person? This is a person who has got just enough religion and Christianity that they think they're a Christian, but they're not passionate enough for God that they're doing anything good for God. It's, it's a very much like the previous church in um, Sardis where Jesus said, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Or the first church, Ephesus, where he said, you've lost your first love. It's very similar. Lukewarm means you have a, an aspect or, or, or some part of Christianity about you, but you're not on fire for God. You're living in the world. You're living like the world. You think you're a Christian, but you don't live like one. And Jesus said that lukewarm was the most dangerous of the three options. And this is so surprising. Many of us would say, surely cold is the most dangerous. Surely lukewarm is not dangerous. And I want to explain to you why lukewarm is the most dangerous. You see, when a person is cold for God, in other words, they are passionately living for the world and for themselves and for pleasure, they reap the, the consequences of that lifestyle. There's an emptiness. There's a meaninglessness. We damage ourselves. We damage our relationships. We damage other people. We are not happy. We realize that there must be more to life than this. And so it forces us to turn to God. I was there as a teenager. I can remember living that lifestyle just a week before I became a Christian. I was in a nightclub with a whole bunch of drunk people fighting, fist fighting with other people because I was living for myself. But a week later, my life turned around. And when we're cold, the consequences of our sin and our lifestyle can cause us to turn to God. And God can use that. You know, there is a couple of places in the Bible, in, in 1 Corinthians 5 and in Timothy, where Paul talks about handing someone over to Satan so that their body or their flesh can be damaged, but their spirit can be saved. And what he's saying is that when a person is in the church, but they're not living for God, they are protected from some of the consequences of their sin, but they risk not getting to heaven. And so they are deluded and they think they are saved when they're not. And it is the worst and the most dangerous place to be. Have you ever thought about being inoculated or vaccinated against a disease? What happens is your body is given just a very small, ineffective part of the disease so that you never get the full disease. You just get enough of it to stop you getting the proper thing. And it's the same with lukewarm Christianity. And I'm sure you can pick up from the way that I'm talking that I feel this is a major problem in the world today. 
people who think they are Christians, people who take the name of Christian, they may even attend church, they may even be clergy or ministry. They take the name of Christian, but Jesus is not the most important thing in their life. They haven't really trusted him for salvation. They haven't had the Holy Spirit come in and make them new on the inside. And so they've been inoculated against Christianity. They've had just enough that they think they've got it, but they will never get the real thing. And Satan has blinded their minds and said to them, you're fine. You're fine. You're okay. Similar to the previous church in Sardis where Jesus said, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually not. Jesus says the same to this church. You see, when we're hot, we are passionate for God and God can use us and we are going to heaven. When we're cold, the consequences of our lifestyle and our sin will cause us to think about God and turn to him. But when we're lukewarm, we are in a drug-like state where we think we're fine and we're not. What a scary thought. Let's read on. In verse 17, he says, Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need or nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What Jesus is saying is that you have a, a view of reality that is incorrect. You're looking at your bank balance, or perhaps you're looking at your earthly comforts. Perhaps you're looking at your government structure and the law and order in your country, the health system. Uh, perhaps your family have gathered around you to make life easy for you. Uh, perhaps you're just a, a very popular person and people love you and you think you are on top of the world and you think that when you die, this will continue. You'll still be rich. You'll still have lots of friends. You'll still be fine because the worldly comforts and pleasures have given you a wrong impression, a drug-induced state of thinking you're fine. And Jesus said, you think because you're rich and you've become wealthy and you need nothing, you're actually fine with God. Can I just ask you, my dear friend, you know, the Bible tells us to challenge rich people and to say your riches will not save you, but you need the salvation of God. All of us are actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked without God. It doesn't matter how popular we are or how many friends we have, how wealthy we are, how well we've done in this world. We, without God, are going to spend eternity away from Him and we need His forgiveness. We need His salvation and His love and His power in our hearts. So they had a wrong idea. He says, because you say, I'm rich and wealthy. What do we do with this? Well, we have to say, it doesn't matter how well I'm getting on in this world. Just because I may have a big bank balance or a reputation of being a good guy or be popular or whatever, just because I'm safe and secure does not mean I'm right with God. How does God see me? And God says, without Him, we are lost. We can't even turn to Him. In Ephesians 2, it says that we are dead without Christ. And that's the the Lord of this world, the, the devil, is actually controlling us behind the scenes and making us do things for him without us even knowing. We need God to come in and open our eyes. Jesus says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye self that you may see. Jesus says there are three things you need. You think you've got everything you need, but you need real gold, not 
physical money. And the real gold is faith that gets refined in a fire and is worth more than gold, the Bible says. He says, I counsel you to buy from me real gold, which is faith. What is faith? Faith is believing in God, seeing with our spiritual eyes that there is more than just this physical world that my five senses can see, that actually there is a spiritual world and there is a hereafter, an eternity that lasts forever. Seeing through the eyes of faith, seeing what God has done and how real He really is. That is the real gold. If you have no money and you have nothing of this world's treasures, but you have faith, you are a rich person, my friend. I had the privilege of leading a church in a very, very poor township in rural Africa and seeing people who had nothing. They had no shoes. They had very little in clothing or possessions. But when they had faith, they were full of God's love and joy and peace. He then started to bless them and they started to come up in the world financially. But that's not the point. The main point was faith was what was important to them and what gave their lives meaning and hope, not just for this life, but for the life to come. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold, faith. Why does he say buy? Because it costs us something, friend. If you're going to get God's faith, you have to give up relying on your own works, your own social status, your own riches, even your own goodness. You have to rely on him and his word. You have to say, my five senses are no longer telling me what is the ultimate reality. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He is the Amen. What he says goes. Psalm 119, verse 128, David says, All your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. Even if my eyes tell me differently, even if the world tells me differently, God's word is true. He says, I counsel you to buy from me faith. You've got to give up your own trust in your own ability and knowledge and say, I want to buy faith. I want to repent of my own works, my own way of life. I want to buy faith. I want to receive from God this reality faith, gold, pure gold, refined in the fire. He says, and white garments that you may be clothed. I've got to buy from him white garments. That's righteousness. He gives, us, gives it as a free gift. But if I'm going to receive this, I have to give up my own garments, which are actually filthy rags. You know, sometimes we think we're so clever, important, uh, well off, but we don't realize actually in God, we could have ultimate garments of righteousness that last throughout eternity. Garments that will never fade away. Garments that God says, I call you righteous. You are pure instead of relying on our own good works. And then lastly, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He says, buy from me this eye salve that you might see. You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, Paul prays for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened, the eyes of your understanding. In other words, not your physical eyes, but your spiritual eyes. And we need God to open our eyes to see what is really true. You may be watching this today, and for the first time maybe in your life, you've realized that cultural Christianity or just popular Christianity, the, the Christianity that everyone says, yes, I'm a Christian, I was christened as a baby. I've been, my name's on a church list somewhere. Cultural Christianity is not the real thing. And your eyes are being opened to the fact that Jesus wants you to be passionate for him, on fire for him, sold out for him, that your old life dies 
and you take in this new life of God. And I want to say to you, that is precious. When you get faith, when you get your eyes of your heart open, when you get this garment of righteousness put on you, it is worth more than all the riches in the world. Will you pray a prayer with me right now, if that's you, and say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry that I've trusted in my own ability, my own possessions, my own understanding, and now I want your salvation. Lord, I put aside my own righteousness, and I ask you to come in and forgive me and wash me, fill me with your spirit, and make me passionate and on fire for you. Amen. He goes on and says in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. What he's saying is these people are Christians. He says, I love you and I'm rebuking and chastening you because you are Christians. In Hebrews 12, it says the same thing. It says those who he chastens or speaks harshly to are those he loves, his, his children, his sons. And Jesus is saying, I, I really want you to come right. I don't want you to fall away. And this means to me that when he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, I don't think he's saying, I'm going to make you no longer a Christian. I think what he's saying is, is that you're going to have the protection of God's blessing removed so that you can see the consequences of living away from God. Now, this sounds harsh and it's a bit foreign to us in our modern world. We don't talk about this much. We don't do this much. But in the New Testament, when a person was in the church, but they were not living for God, they were instructed to remove the church's covering of spiritual blessing and protection off that person. Why? He says clearly in 1 Corinthians 5, so that their flesh can be damaged, but their spirit saved. It's a way of God saying, I want you to just shake and wake up and see that actually you're in mortal danger if you think you're a Christian, but you're living like the world. And so we're going to remove that from you so that you see the consequences of your sin. Verse 20, lovely verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Even now, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he is knocking. There's a door in your heart. Did you know that? We spoke last week about doors and keys. And Jesus is the door and he holds the keys. But you have a door in your heart that only you can open. Now, it's a door where, whereby you say, yes, I will allow that in. Yes, I will accept that. Yes, I will receive that. But God gives you the ability to open or close that door. And he demands that you decide whether to open or close that door. I told the story last week about a, a man who had so many demons, a legion of demons, but he could still choose to go kneel at Jesus' feet. Even though he was oppressed by so many demons, he could choose to kneel at Jesus' feet to get saved. Because no matter how much the devil has damaged your life, you have a door in your heart and you are the only one who can choose whether to open or close it. Now, you may have opened it to many of the wrong things, but the minute you hear Jesus' voice, and you open the door to him. He comes in. He sweeps the house clean. He makes himself the Lord of that house. And he says, now this house is a place of light and life and strength for all eternity. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, we've got to hear him calling. And you may hear him calling you today. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. That means, says, Jesus, come in and you take residence as the Lord and the ruler of my life. If anyone opens the door, I will come in 
and dine with him and he with me. There is this fellowship. There is good food. There is conversation. There is a smiling face. Have you ever imagined yourself sitting at a meal with Jesus and he's smiling at you as you eat together? I have had that dream in my life before and it was so real to me. And I want to just put that in your heart today that Jesus wants to have supper with you. He wants to dine with you, not just once, but every meal, every day. He wants to have constant fellowship with you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to listen to your hurts and, and whatever's in your heart. And he wants to have this relationship with you. But he says, I'm knocking at the door. You have to give me the permission to come in and be Lord of your life. What a joy. Then he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You know, in Ephesians chapter one, from verse 18 onwards, there's a lovely passage where Paul prays, as I've already mentioned, Lord, I pray, open the eyes of their understanding or their hearts that they may see the power that you've given them. And then he describes this power. He says, it's like Jesus who was dead in the tomb, a dead, lifeless body. And the power of God came into Jesus and raised him up from the dead and not just raised him to life, but actually raised him all the way up to heaven. And he is now seated on a throne in heavenly places with all the authorities and demonic forces under his feet. And he's Lord of all the earth. And then the very next chapter, it says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God put life into you and raised you up. And now, Ephesians 2 verse 6, it says, and now you are seated with him in heavenly places, also on that throne. Now here Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is saying, when we die, if we've remained hot for him, passionate Christians for him, we will sit on a throne with him. But Ephesians 2 verse 6 says there is an element of that sitting on a throne, that heavenly joy and power and strength and fellowship with Jesus. There is an element of that you can experience here on earth. It's not full. It's not complete. We're not really in heaven yet, but our hearts are. In Luke 17, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. We are seated in heavenly places in our hearts and all of that power is available to you today. You know, every time in these seven letters, Jesus said to him who overcomes, I will give uh, the tree of life, a white stone with a new name on it. All these different blessings he's giving. They are elements of heaven that are waiting for us, but they are also elements of heaven that we can appropriate now to a certain degree. And I want to encourage you, my friend. We read through seven letters in Revelation. There are a couple of key takeaways. Number one. Jesus is still alive and speaking today. Jesus cares about churches. That's the second point. He cares about churches and he wants us in a family of believers. The third point is Jesus knows your works and what you're going through. Absolutely. He knows everything about your life and he cares and he has something to say. A word of encouragement, a word of correction. We need it. We need to hear what he has to say. The third thing is he says, to him who overcomes, let him hear what the Spirit says. We've got to be listening and willing to adjust and obey. And then lastly, he says, to him who overcomes, if you will take my strength, take my words to heart, rely on me and overcome whatever this thing is in front of you. 
Maybe it's opposition. Maybe it's lukewarmness. Whatever it is, if you will overcome, you will inherit, inherit part of heaven now, but you will inherit heaven eternity to come. Eternity to come. Friend, this church in Laodicea is probably the most similar to our modern church. You know, in 2 Timothy, we're told that in the last days, there will become godliness. Let me read it to you. But know this, 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, In the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But listen to this now. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. These are people who have a form of godliness, but all those lifestyles are in them. Friend, there are millions of people who call themselves Christians. Some of them go to church. Some of them have their name on a church register. Some of them were christened as babies and they think they are Christians. But Jesus said, no, no, you've got to be passionate. You've got to live for me. You've got to have the power of my spirit in you. And you and I need to spread this word. Lukewarm Christianity is when Jesus says you're in mortal danger because you're deluded and you think you are safe when you're not. Will you pray this prayer with me for us, but also for many, many people around the world. Lord Jesus, please rid us and help us to be saved from lukewarm Christianity, from nominal Christianity. Lord Jesus, please help us to be saved and to be safe from thinking we are Christians and we're close to you when we are far from you. Jesus, please make us hot for you. I pray we wouldn't have to be cold for you, Lord, but I pray that we would be hot and passionate and on fire for you. And I pray for everyone who's listening, Lord, that you would help us to get into churches, to strengthen our churches, and Lord, for us to listen to the voice that you are using to speak to us today and to change our lives and to display you more accurately in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, look us up, leadinglightsnetwork.com. We are passionate about helping people start and lead small groups, churches, all over the world, and we would love to help you in whatever small or big way you want to grow for the Lord. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com for more resources and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please consider supporting this ministry by making a donation on the giving page at leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.